It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Stephen, it's got to happen. We've got to talk about the EU. It's, I've avoided it as long as I can humanly could because I hate the EU as a subject. I find it really technical, really boring. And the worst thing is about it that everybody who's really interested in the EU puts me off the EU every even further. Do you know what I mean? It's got that kind of... It, it attracts a certain kind of... I'm going to be very prejudiced against Merton here and say man, who the kind of person who corners you at a party and sort of presents you with the bullet points of stuff and you kind of edge and you have to eventually pretend that you need to kind of get a glass of wine and escape. Yeah, and I think that is actually probably the Remain side's um, secret weapon, not so secret weapon, that leave won't win while it feels like the preserve of the sort of man who upon learning you're getting married grabs you by an arm and tells you earnestly about ointments you should start buying. Um, and, and, and a lot of them, the interesting thing, I've just been watching the Commons debate on the renegotiation deal, and Gisela Stewart, who's one of the handful of Labour MPs who thinks we should leave, and she's from uh, Germany originally, but she's lived in Britain most of her life, and she's hugely respected by MPs on all sides, so mm. the house goes silent when she speaks, and she was sort of talking about it, and you suddenly think, oh, a sane, normal-seeming person making the argument for leave. I, this, this, How this, exciting. Yeah, this never happens. Um, and, and also, I think it's one of those things where, because it's so technical, I think most people, and I imagine most of your listeners, please don't leave. We're talking about Bernie Sanders later, mm. um, are, um, are kind of pro, but not that interested yet. I think that's uh, what I, I went through a sort of journey, which is I was always instinctively pro just because it seemed like being leave was a kind of inward looking little Englander kind of, you know, uh, thing. And then I kind of went, then I went to Norway last year and I kind of went, this kind of feels exactly the same, you know. They've still got um, EU passport queues. You know, you still got the you still get the benefit of the mobile phone network deal that they agreed. That kind of stuff. Obviously, immigration. You know, in some respects, they they, they have to conform to that because they get part of the free trade agreement. And I thought, well, actually, then maybe the argument is it wouldn't make really any difference if we if we did leave. But now I've swung back round to the idea that actually people are going to make decisions that affect Britain, and it would be better to be part of those decisions rather than sort of stamping our tiny foot and, and walking out in exchange for probably not very much anyway. I also think the, the big difference, and I'm aware of the unpopularity of about of what I'm about to say on a New Statesman podcast, is that the the capital the finance capital of the European Union is in is in London. If we left the European Union, the city of London would not stay out well obviously the physical city of London would stay where it is. But the the EU would not tolerate or support a situation where 
the finance capital of the continent is not inside the regulatory mm. reach of the continent. Most of it would move to Frankfurt. Um, HSB or Morgan Stanley, one, one has basically hinted that they probably would leave. The other has out, outright said they would leave. And a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, who cares? So what? It, it's yes, not. See you later, bankers. But. But, you know, the, the flip side of that is, with the exception of, of, of this job, every job I've ever had has effectively been paid for by, by the finance industry. The first job I ever had, a bookshop in Canary Wharf, selling books to bankers. You know, and, you know, the whole value chain, you know, like across, across large chunks of London, across the south, and, you know, and out to the north does, does come from, from financial services. So there are lots of problems with how unbalanced Britain's economy is, but at the moment, financial services is kind of what we do. It would be a hammer blow to, and it would, you know, it would, it would hit the little guy because, you know, lots of the people who are actually currently working as bankers at Credit Suisse or whatever have German. They have English, so they can go to New York. They would all be fine, but the the knock-on effect would, would be fairly severe. I, I take your point, actually, as well. And also, you know, London has benefited hugely from... Um, you know the kind of migration that's followed, and a lot of that has followed the fact that it is a it is a city that pulls in people from all kinds mm. of people, and you know it pulls in all the service industries that support that. I find it I find it quite difficult because I don't really you know, having watched The Big Short, I'm feeling extra militant about about you know financial services industry basically kind of making up products to sell each other, so that when they all tank, they all have to be bailed out together. Um, let's role play for a minute as if I am somebody who doesn't care enough to have read what Cameron came back with. What did Cameron come back with? I mean, not all that much, uh, to be honest. It's worth casting your mind back to the five tests. You don't know the five tests. No, I do. I know, because we always say that the five baskets. He's got five baskets. That's the thing that you have to say if you want to sound like you're an insider. You go, yeah, I'm I'm not sure how much he got in the uh, immigration basket. Right, so yeah, these five baskets, One of some of which were fairly banal, so the recognition that the European Union has more than one currency, which is basically there's a line in the agreement going the European Just Union has, has, has more than one currency, <laughs> yeah. protection for the non-Euro countries, because effectively the everyone knows, uh, you know, I mean, it, there are a couple of columnists who like to print out this, but every serious economist knows that you will not get a resolution to the uh, Euro crisis if the creditor nations within the Eurozone uh, have to make up the difference solely through austerity. There is going to have to be some form of fiscal transfer from Germany, France, and you know, the creditor nations to the mm. to the debtor nations, which is obviously what happens in the US all the time. Um, we forget that Louisiana has actually had far more acute current um, budgetary problems than Greece had at, to begin with. And Detroit went bankrupt, yeah, and Detroit didn't went bankrupt, it? And it obviously didn't, didn't create a dollar crisis. Uh, and so there will have to be a further integration of the Eurozone. The fear is then, does that mean that you have a Eurozone which votes one way and everyone who's outside of it gets stuffed? So there's some stuff about protection for two-tier, a two-tier Europe, which is this weird irony that in the 90s, uh, Eurosceptic Tories were obsessed with this idea of avoiding being in a two-tier Europe. And now they've decided that what it's they want is the, the right to be part of a two-tier Europe. I thought um, our former colleague, Raphael Baer, wrote a very interesting piece in The Guardian talking about how Cameron had always seen his diplomatic failure and always seeing Europe as a question of party management. So, you know, first of all, he was concerned about putting off the referendum. Then he was concerned about promising a referendum. Now he's concerned about kind of getting it through at the exactly right timing. And the fact that he put in the stuff that 
you know, not maybe even not even thinking about the Eastern European nations and how they would feel about the the idea of freezing, um, you know, in-work benefits for people who who come over because obviously, you know, vastly popular with uh, Shire Tories, vastly unpopular with Romania and and Poland and all the people Mm. who will be supplying the people that will do that. And how much of um, how much of his kind of the, the paucity of his of what he came back with is really down to things like, you know, the really deep-rooted stuff, like having failed to join that EPP grouping, the kind of grouping of sort of centre-right parties right back in whenever it was, 2011. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it is that the, the decision to remove the Conservatives from the EPP has cast a very long shadow because it, it's when... It's a bit like, you know, that Friends episode when Rachel starts smoking in order to get a promotion. Effectively, the EPP is like the group of people in an office who go outside, smoke, talk lots before the meeting... And then when the actual meeting comes up, have already made lots of agreements. By pulling out of the EPP, Cameron effectively quit smoking on behalf of of, of British diplomats I like the strong whiff that you get off an Angela Merkel sort of thought he was, you know, pretty unimpressive when he turned up. And, I, and you know, that is a woman who has sat through, you know, Berlusconi, has sat through Putin, you know, unleashing his dogs on her. And he she just sort of took one look at him and went, not a serious player. But... Has he begun to slightly win back some respect just by having been virtue of having been re-elected? Yeah, I mean, in one, in some ways, there's a slightly strange thing in uh, in, in Europe, in Oxford, that then there's an element of like, oh well, show us your mandate, um, and it, it's quite, it's you know, he's won, he's survived. Um, the British economy is doing relatively well, considering the fate of most European. For the same reason that, that Renzi, a politician with very different politics, this is Italy's Matteo Renzi, Italy, yeah. Uh, to to Cameron is is also respected because he you know is is very popular. He's he's starting to turn the economy around, um, and also Cameron has finally started to realise you do have to talk to Eastern Europe, not just about Eastern Europe. I remember when I was still at the Telegraph, being invited for a diplomatic lunch with um, an Eastern an Eastern European embassy, and um, I didn't quite know what it what it was about. And they sat down. I said so. They said so. And I said, well, you know, how do you feel about the renegotiation? What does Cameron want? And they said, well, we were kind of hoping you would tell us. And and basically, the, the problem is, is Number 10 still hasn't worked out what it's going to offer Eastern European nations, that when they go to their electorate and go, guess what, we've just agreed that you, if you get sick while you're in Britain, no benefits for you, that would yeah, ever but... make that politically survivable. The other thing I think is really interesting is a kind of, something that we expected, we were confidently expected to happen, that I have been thinking for a while might not happen, and I'm now more sure of that, and that is the Tory split in Europe. I mean, as Labour has had its kind of, you know, low-level civil war for quite some time, you know, a lot of people have kind of said, why aren't you covering the Tory divisions on Europe? And, you know, my stock response to that has been, there aren't any yet. I mean, like, people have entrenched positions that they've held for decades, but nobody is yet at the stage of, you know, beyond a few kind of incorruptibles who will say this every time but you know our marginal figures on the back benches that that there isn't there just isn't uh you know i guess boris johnson is the is the only remaining person who might still come out i mean theresa may is basically throwing mm. her weight behind cameron you know so boris johnson might possibly cut you know to lead the leave campaign he might like the glory of that but i suspect more he will want to be on the winning side which is looking more and more like remain and that he will kind of just continue to sort of show a bit of leg to both sides for as long as humanly possible before reluctantly not being kind of overtly disloyal to Cameron. Yeah, I mean, I also think the thing with Boris is he is 
secret. Look, then, so there's a Tony Blair in 1982 when he joined CND said to a friend, oh, well, you've got to wear the right badges, which is something, of course, in his latter-day successes in the 2015 leadership election forgotten. You do have to offer something to your party activists. And Euroscepticism is basically the equivalent of the nuclear deterrent in the 80s for Tory MPs. A lot of them have never really believed it. It's just something you say to your activists. So what's happened, I think, is that 2010 intake and 2015 intake Tory MPs who are Eurosceptic were replacing Tory MPs who were Eurosceptic because they believed that it who was bad. actually Eurosceptic. With people yeah. who are Eurosceptic in a kind of, in the same way than most... But then the, I think everybody, I'm Eurosceptic, you're Eurosceptic, in the sense that I think there are large portions of Europe that need reform. They still haven't had their accounts signed off in like, what, 11 billion years mm. now. You know, there's strange tax-free arrangements for people working in, you know, vast sums of money that sort of seem to disappear. So in that sense, yeah, I am, and, and you know, and as as the Schengen agreements come under more and more strain, that that idea, I think, is it, people are beginning to be quite sceptical of, of a sort of borderless Europe. But I just think it's an interesting question on the left because I just don't feel that anyone on the left, even Jeremy Corbyn, who is kind of naturally Eurosceptic, mm. this isn't his, this isn't up there with Trident for him. This isn't one that he will face down the party on. I don't, I don't, I'm not getting that sense at all. Yeah, I think well, that that is the interesting thing because. Um, Jeremy is of the, I mean, one of the la- the handful of Labour Leave MPs said to me before the renegotiation got back. And the significant thing is what's not in the renegotiation. He has failed to unpick any of social Europe. Britain is not leaving the social chapter. Uh, he's not eroding workers' rights. And they said if Cameron had got even one of those things, that would have irritated enough party members to allow Jeremy to do what he sort of would prefer to do, which is go, I think we should leave. But... I mean, one, it shows that Jeremy Corbyn is a more able politician than a lot of people give him credit for in terms of balancing. So people go, oh, he's irritating the MPs, but the MPs aren't his power base. In terms of balancing the interests of members, he is, yeah, he's actually much more able. Than Trident is weird because it, Trident is Europe for, for the Labour Party. It's, it's a religious issue, not a, mm. a policy issue. Um, the weird thing is that it turns out there are many more agnostics in the Tory party than we had all believed we'd kind of all thought they were going to be fighting by now yeah um, i think when you think that that side is what Theresa villiers chris grayling ian duncan smith pretty patel you know these are not what's the kindest way of putting this either household names or in the names in which they are household in the households in which they are household names they're not particularly well liked household names yeah i mean i think that that is kind of the thing i mean it, at, at ukip conference in 2014 another journalist uh at one point, they looked around and they said, oh, God, there's just no one in this room who you'd want to go out with, is there? And that and that was that was UKIP's problem. And they, they turned off a lot of people just because they their activist base freaked out a lot of people who might otherwise have agreed with but them. But that's exactly how I feel about you know, having been in rooms with both Douglas Carswell and Nigel Farage. You know, both in their own way, interesting politicians, both have ideas that are appealing to a lot of people. Would you want to be stuck in a car journey with either of them or, you know, in the corner of a pub? No, in very different ways, but but both no. Whereas Alan Johnson, you think, oh, I'd have dinner with Alan Johnson. Yeah, I'd have a pint with Alan Johnson. And I suspect that's the other reason why Boris, as well as the fact that he's secretly a bit of a pro-European, is one, he doesn't want to be associated with the losing campaign. But two, that, exactly so, those aren't household names. With the exception of Pretty Patel, they're, they're all people whose careers are very much behind them Peaked, yes. uh, yeah I mean Theresa Villiers uh, survival as Northern Ireland secretary is 
one of the great mysteries of uh, of modern political Chris life. Chris Grayling is, is was so bad as Justice Secretary that Michael Gove is now easily unpicking all of his reforms. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is if if you're so bad at your job then the government doesn't change, but your replacement from your own party basically you turned just on because this is terrible. This um, was all terrible. Why do we do this? Yeah, then that's bad. And yeah. then you've got, yeah, and then Ian Duncan Smith, who, you, as you know, I have a great level of personal animus towards because I just think he's not aware of the fact that had he not been born Ian Duncan Smith, he would not have his career. Yeah. Um, but um, Yeah, Ian Duncan Smith is the weirdest one in some ways because he, I'm surprised he isn't going, because the other problem for Leave is, is ignoring whether or not Cameron's deal makes any sense. And the weird heartening thing is Cameron has succeeded where, uh, where the NS, hundreds of Labour politicians, hundreds of, of pro-migration think tanks have failed. We finally got the Sun to argue that uh, people don't immigrate to claim benefits. They immigrate to get jobs. Um, but it doesn't. Then the Eurosceptics can fulminate about that as much as they like. Cameron is the second most popular politician in, in England after, after Boris Johnson. And in Scotland, the, the, fit, the, the most popular politician in, in the country, Nicola Sturgeon, will be going around the country telling people to, to vote mm. to stay. And in Wales, Leanne Wood and Carwin Jones, the two the, who are tied, will be saying... So they're kind of a bit stuffed, unless they really attack Cameron personally and nuke his credibility. I'm surprised Ian Duncan Smith... Who must know that his his he, his political survival is only linked to Cameron's need to have one person of his politics to say to that bit of the Tory party, "Oh no, I haven't junked it completely." Yeah, you're still in the tent. Yeah, why he hasn't gone full on? He's lying. He's awful. Because unless they do that, unless they can drive down Cameron's credibility with the public, I can't see how Leave can win from him. But that's because I'm, in my opinion, that's because Ian Duncan Smith thinks he's doing the Lord's work at the DWP, and that's why he's fought so hard to stay in that position. When mm. you know George Osborne would quite happily see the see the back of him, and you know Universal Credit could be kicked into even longer grass, the longest grass, like pampas grass, yeah. uh, if they manage to get rid of him. Well, no doubt we'll be returning to this issue many, many. This is going to be worse than Labour leadership. You know that, don't you? Oh, there won't even be CLP nominations to tide us over. Exactly. You're going to have to think of a whole thing to go slightly weird over. I don't know. What could it... Maybe we just have, like, Boris watch or something. Like, you know, what? where is Boris showing his ankle to this week? Watch. Oh, yeah. Boris watch would be fun. Yeah. Okay. Boris's ankle. Um, thanks very much. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And welcome to You Ask Us, the section where you ask us questions. Um... And our question this week is from Alistair, I won't say Alistair Hall, but I really should have written that down before okay. I get into it. And uh, he asks, uh, I think, a very interesting question, which is the line that Labour left this mess, we've got to clean it up, which is obviously devastatingly effective for the last five years and at the election. Uh, will it lose its potency over the, over, the, over the next five years and as we come into 2020? I think there does come a point where you say, why, why, why haven't you fixed it then? But these things have a really long lifetime. When, a, when like a meme gets hold in politics, the number of people who will now still say to you, you say, well, well, yeah, what was Gordon Brown like as a politician? They will say, he threw mobile phones at people and he sold the gold. 
And, you know, that is two small points on an extremely long resume. I think that they have, I think, in fact, I think as one Ez Bush wrote in the New States one a while ago, the Tories hammered that, hammered that message over and over again. And, you know, no matter how many times the Labour says, well, actually, more like we were just the ones who happened to be not sitting in a chair when the music stopped. And that happened to a whole range of governments, both of the left and right across Europe. It sort of doesn't really matter. The financial crisis was a fact and that's and it's a fact that people really seriously remembered that there were apocalyptic front pages every day about you know northern rock and people queuing outside it yeah and i think i mean i think yeah obviously by 2020 it will effectively be the point labor was at 2007 during the blair brown handover when the idea that you could have gone oh but black wednesday had obviously lost a great deal of its force because labor did try and pin black wednesday on cameron briefly which Obviously, well, there's a hilarious photo of him in the absurd double-breasted suit, isn't there, yeah. walking at Sir Norman Lamont? And they tried to get some mileage out of that, which uh, which didn't work. And the advantage they have now is that Jeremy was not involved in any of those decisions, whereas the Eds had been in the Treasury for mm. for all of for all of that time. Um, yes, the son of Brown thing doesn't really yeah. work, I guess. However, my instinct, and I am entirely pulling this from the air is that you get three elections on the the mess the other people if if then is that not contingent on them having a new leader is this the 1992 thesis that you bring in a new leader who goes yeah okay so maybe george osborne was a bit you know he made a few cuts and that and actually now that the recovery is on its way we can reap the reward of that by easing up a little bit and you're the you know you're the new face but you still benefit from the kind of core of support that you had before oh yes definitely i mean i think the 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 mistake Labour made was not calling the election when Gordon Brown was briefly new. So I think it would be wise for the Tories, rather than him, Cameron stepping down in 2020, 2019, would be to step down in April 2020. And so you've got someone who's new, they're fresh, uh, they can say, oh, I'm I'm different now. And I think it would be a mistake on their part to keep Osborne. Because the weird thing is, if, if it's not Osborne, if it's Nicky Morgan, say then the last Conservative government can become to her what the last Labour government was to this one. So I think there's this hope for Labour than, than, than Osborne will still, who people didn't like 10 years ago, mm. let alone uh, in 2020. My is question is, that, and I think it's a sort of bigger question, is where do the Labour seats that get Labour to a majority come from? And I think sort of everything else is a bit, you know, everything else is sort of arguable, but... Southwest is now a sea of blue. It was always, you know, Lib Dem, uh, with the exception of Exeter, Ben Bradshaw's seat, you know, it was always a Lib Dem Tory margin, it's now Tories. Labour have not been doing that brilliantly in Wales. Uh, you know, they're not expected to do particularly well in the Welsh elections this summer. They have done it really well in London, but they're now so well that they are piling up v- votes in seats that they already hold. Scotland doesn't seem to be falling out of love with the SNP on a you know on a dramatic time scale so it's it, it's really tough to see where that you know where the where the you know if they wanted to not be in a situation again where the whole message was about them doing a deal with the SNP to hold power that was actually about a labor majority i think it's really tough to see where the seats come from yeah i mean on a uniform swing the seats that labor would have to win before boundaries changes to win a majority of 10 are um bradley and filton stoke harlow Rugby, Sto- um, Kensington and Chelsea, 
Canterbury, India, yeah, they are all conservative held, and four of them have never been won by, by Labour in its history, although on current demographics, Kensington would have been a Tory uh, Labour gain in 1997. So it's difficult. Uh, the path to victory only runs through... Well, it sort of depends. My instinct is that actually if you have a strong leader, the bossed around by the SNP line mm. uh, doesn't work. I actually think... I think Jeremy Corbyn has other problems in Middle England, but I don't think people think that, that Jeremy Corbyn is bossed around by people. I think they think he is no, he's a rigid. man of strong and, yeah, he's, and unyielding... He's, he's stuck for 30 yeah. years to the things that he believes yeah. in. The thought that Nicola Sturgeon is going to tell... He's going to kind of completely... Um, you know, make him abandon that. I mean, the, yeah, all the attack lines on him about him not abandoning and not compromising. Mm. So yeah, I think that that does change things. So that's that's my kind of answer to it, really. You know, the ne- it, it's got to have a, a Labour if it wants to learn has got to have a popular leader, and it has got to be economically trustworthy. It's got to be not. I think this kind of comes back to what we were saying earlier about the EU. It's got to m- convince people that the that change is a is a is a small gamble, but not a not a terrifying gamble. That they, you know, that thing. If, for most people, for whom things are not that bad, and that, that's the feeling that very strong that I got when I went to Worcester when during this election campaign, which is, you know, was two and a half thousand Tory majorities now five thousand majority. It was things had been bad during the financial crisis, but you know, people's mortgages were now lower because they were on tracker rates. You know, the high street was still okay, and that's that's the kind of place that was won by Labour in ninety seven, and is not on course to be you know one one back by the many times soon um i'm just going to say apologies to uh i'm not yeah i'm another reader who wrote in mungo tatton brown who said could we address the question of whether or not sanders or corbyn more like to win but although we haven't specifically answered that question we have given you a whole section on uh, bernie sanders versus jeremy corbyn which with which i hope you will be equally pleased uh and if anyone else has got any questions please tweet or email me or Stephen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. What's been going on this week? So it's Europe that's been the focus. David Cameron has returned with uh, the draft agreements between the UK and, and the EU ahead of a referendum, which now appears almost certain to be on June the 23rd. And I think what's been most notable is that although Cameron undershot already low expectations. I mean, for instance, the four-year ban on um, in-work benefits for new migrants that was promised in the Conservative manifesto has become a graduated increase. Um, The red card uh, veto that the UK has over EU laws is one that could only be used with 55% support among national parliaments. So it's it's not really a a UK veto at all. So despite all of that, um, the great Tory war that has... uh, been long predicted, um, has been reduced to more of an argument, uh, a a quarrel. Um, Perhaps only five um, of the cabinet um, will campaign for Brexit. 
Um, no one's resigned despite uh, calls from Eurosceptic commentators and MPs for them to do so, which means that they're, they're lagging behind the uh, in-campaign, who already have uh, senior cabinet ministers uh, basically making their case for them, most, most obviously the prime minister. And Boris Johnson and, and Theresa May, who were seen as two big beasts who could come over to the out campaign, have both signaled this week that uh, they will almost certainly support in. So for all those reasons, it's becoming quite hard to see how the out campaign win without some unforeseen event. Why aren't the Tories having a big row over Europe? I think there are several reasons. I think it's partly because although there are a lot of Eurosceptics in the in the Conservative Party, there's a big difference between being sceptical of the EU, not liking um, some or, or, or most of what it does, and believing that it's in Britain's national interest to, to leave the EU. I think it's partly the weakness of, of UKIP that had Mark Re- Reckless kept his seat, it would have been a much more, or had others been elected, uh, that could have appeared an, an, alternative, uh, an alternative party. And I think it's the strength of the Conservatives in the polls as well. So you had the great uh, Maastricht Wars under John Major, and that was partly because the party seemed condemned to electoral defeats against against Labour, and so people felt they had less to lose. And all the, the current polls suggest the Tories are on course for a landslide victory in 2020. There will be a change of Prime Minister, uh, George Osborne, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, or, or someone else, all of the potential leaders... Um, are going are likely to support the in campaign, and that means that MPs feel they have an interest in in not um, in not being on on the opposite side. Right. Um, and the statement in the Commons, uh, how did that go down? I mean, some Tory MPs took a bit of a, a strip out of him, didn't they? They did. So I think Jacob Rees-Mogg um, came up with one of the most memorable lines: saying, "You know, David Cameron has just weeks to save his reputation as a as a negotiator." But Cameron has become, as as you'd imagine, quite adept at dealing with them and often says, essentially, look, there's nothing I could have brought back that would have satisfied you guys. You've wanted um, EU exit for a long time and this is your chance and, and, and go for it. But um, I'm going to take a, a different view. And he is in a he is in a strong position. He's um, I think he was right to uh, call this referendum early rather than waiting. Of course, he could have waited um, until as long as December 2017. But the danger with delaying would be the longer you wait, the greater the risk that the referendum becomes a proxy vote on something else. Um, There's the risk of an economic crisis, uh, a new political scandal here or or in Brussels that influences voters. But I even think even in those circumstances, it would be quite hard to, to convince 50% of the, the population that we should leave, of the electorate that we should leave um, the EU. And, and for reasons actually that are quite separate from the, the renegotiation. Although I do think the renegotiation is often described as a sideshow, but it should be remembered. You know, polling shows that there are voters who uh, are looking for an excuse to vote in. Something's just nudged them over the line. And actually, in those terms, Cameron's coming back and saying, I've got a better deal. It's not perfect, but I've got a better deal, is is quite an incentive. Um, but fundamentally, I think the referendum will be focused on issues of um, prosperity and, and security. That's what Cameron will emphasize. He'll say, amid global economic uncertainty, this is no time to um, pull out from the EU and to leave the single market um, when so much of our trade is with Europe. And he'll say, in the face of ISIS and, and an expansionist Russia, 
we would be less secure and um, and more vulnerable outside the EU. And very similar arguments to those deployed during the general election and the Scottish independence referendum. And we know how both of those turned out. So although I shy away from making easy predictions after a, a Tory majority and after Jeremy Corbyn becoming Labour leader, I think it is increasingly hard to see how, how outs turn this around. Right. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week. Now we're joined by uh, Imad, our welcome scholar, and you're very welcome to to join us. <laughs> Please you, stop. Um, <laughs> and you said that Imad, bro, was a terrible pun. Right, okay. Um, Imad, the reason you're joining us is because you are a lone voice in the office. Actually, yes. not that lone, but kind of semi-lone voice in the office. Voice of reason, yes. Yeah, who really likes Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont, who is challenging Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. You're not a fan of, what's his name, Martin... Now, I think Martin O'Malley is good. What's funny is if either Clinton or Sanders weren't in this race, Martin O'Malley would be a perfectly acceptable candidate. He stormed like 0.7% of the vote in the uh, Iowa caucus, right? Mm. Yeah. I worry that uh, I am now seeing the entirety of the US presidential race through the prism of the Labour leadership election last summer. I sort of feel like there's kind of some kind of grisly reenactment going on where there is a sort of love for an older white man that is kind of connected to young people's feeling that they want kind of Captain Birdseye slash, you know, like cool granddad, which I guess does happen to women too, because it does happen to Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well, when the Supreme Court justices and there's a whole like notorious RBG meme. This is a slightly kind of patronising all the way that some people are really into like Harry Leslie Smith, where he's like, it's the idea that sort of a 92 year old can have can have a Twitter account or, yeah. or not, as the case may be, is, is kind of just, is, you know, is kind of seen as being cute in some way. I think that the, I mean, so the thing is, the interesting thing is, there are some intriguing similarities uh, between the two candidates, but it's mainly in terms of their base of support. Um, the most interesting thing, and the reason why I realised I haven't bothered to form a view about it is. Sanders really can't win because he doesn't have any ethnic minority support. He got apart I mean, from Emad. Apart from Emad, only yes. you lived in uh, America. But, but yeah, he got something like I mean, yes, uh, Iowa's uh, black population is basically one particularly large family, but um, but he got four percent of the vote among ethnic minority uh, voters in the in the Iowa caucuses, and that is entirely consistent with his position in the national polls. And you cannot win the Democratic nomination. If you are, um, if you are that underwater with, because the minorities. New Yorker profile of him said, you know, he's had got, got quite a long record of involvement with civil rights activism, and he made a bit of a faux pas on Black Lives Matter, where he kind of didn't, he, you know, his the stage was stormed by two activists, and he was kind of kind of grouchy with them. But there's a there was a line in it said that you know the black community leaders would would never be surprised to get a call from the Clintons, but he's he doesn't do that. So it's a kind of thing about it's again it's more like Jeremy Corbyn. It's not a question so much of his principles so much as the kind of graft of politics and like actually do you make the phone calls? Do you turn up to funerals? Do you take part in community events? But the weird thing is 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 Jeremy does put the hours in. Um, it, you know he um, in this week's magazine I've reviewed uh, of the Corbyn rivalry and one of the things which really comes through in that is you know he's. His his neighbours uh, and you know the people who've been council leaders in his patch or group leaders, you know people like Mary Cray, David Lammy, they don't share his politics at all, but they have a lot of time for for Jeremy as someone who turns up. But weirdly, Jeremy's support base uh, in the Labour Party in the in the leadership election was almost wholly white. It was one of the really remarkable things about the number of rallies I attended. 
uh, as well as the figure in the the private polling which revealed that he was uh, going to win, is that most of the time I would be the only uh, uh, ethnic minority face or one of about a handful. And then you'd go to, and I think this is why the Andy but, Burnham campaign deluded themselves they were going to win for so long, because you'd go to an Andy Burnham rally and it was full of ethnic minorities, but of course there are hardly any ethnic minorities in the Labour Party selectorate anyway, so it didn't do them that much good. But we have to take into account gender here because Hillary Clinton has long been assumed she's going to win the, you know, the, the candidacy uh, and also has the, the gender support. It's still there, the gap is still there, but not so much when you look at age mm. and it's the older voters, the Democratic voters who are backing Hillary Clinton. And I think that's the reason why there is a parallel with you know, Jeremy Corbyn and Sanders where the youth vote is out there. But I think it's a bit more nuanced and it's also just the ideas where General Corbyn does talk about big ideas, you know, a world without nuclear weapons, things like that. And I think that's what Sanders is doing as well, talking about campaign finance reform, global warming, things like that, which aren't on the immediate... Do you worry, though, that campaign finance reform is, is America's AV? It's the sort of kind of... I know Citizens United was objectively a terrible Supreme Court decision. The idea that kind of corporations are people for the purposes of funding has made American politics appreciably worse. But I just wonder if it's... It's, it's one of those issues that motivates a small number of people a huge amount because it is, it is a big injustice. Is it, you know, to somebody who has just lost their job at the auto factory, it's probably not the kind of thing well, that's going to I think that's why you need a good communicator. Sanders clearly is saying that this is one of the reasons why you know, things aren't working in politics. And we also have to put it into context. I mean, he has more separate you know, individual donors and uh, small donations compared to you know, Barack Obama when he ran in 2008. So it is clearly a very big moment in terms of it actually translating into him getting the candidacy. Unfortunately, I don't think that will actually happen. But I think the reason why people are appealing to, you know, are going, you know, uh, for his message is because he's talking about those long-term issues. And unfortunately, with the 24-hour news cycle that we all suffer through and, and obviously live through, mm. um, yeah, people just wanting to sort out the next problem. And I think that's the reason why universities always look to candidates like Corbyn and Sanders. But what, so, is his support quite graduate-based? Um, it, it's not, actually. This is, so th- this is the thing, because I, was, because I am continually intrigued by... Uh, because basically what's happening to the left all throughout the, um, the democratic world is that it's being knackered by a right-wing populist party and then it's being challenged by another more left-wing party. So there's a a left, centre-left battle. In countries with PR systems, a new party's established, which is, is taking a large chunk of the old party's votes. In both America and the UK, and to a lesser extent in Australia and New Zealand, where the electoral system effectively locks in the existing party, it's happening within the uh, existing party. And the interesting thing and in all of these movements have in common is not necessarily class so obviously most Corbyn supporters in the selectorate were middle class but the average Labour member is middle class so how much can you draw from that really it's difficult to say but most people who vote for Die Linke are the German left wing party party are white in in the east that's because most people who vote for Die Linke are are voting for the old GDR effectively but in the west their supporters are again Predominantly, uh, they are you know they're much less likely to be Turkish than either the CDU, the ruling right wing party, or the SPD, the traditional legacy party. Uh, Spain is ethnically homogenous anyway, so it's less um, it's less interesting there. And again, in Sanders, he actually did quite well in non college ed- among non college edited white 
I mean, admittedly, they're non-college educated whites who are voting in the Democratic primary, <laughs> uh, which yes, whereas mostly non-college educated whites would vote in the Republican primary because so they're they're a bit odd anyway. But he he does have a an ethnic minority problem. I mean, that is why. Yeah, the, the likelihood is he'll win New Hampshire, but he'll then lose uh, South Carolina, Nevada, and then I think would be lucky to get to win anywhere outside of Vermont on Super Tuesday. But I think class does have have a role in this. You've given examples of you know how because of the systems we have, and you know compared to America and Australia, uh, the reason why you know the left is in a bit of a malaise around the world is because it has shifted a bit to the right, and this is the problem why we're seeing the GOP completely you know, break down. Um, but yeah, New Labour was obviously a bit more to the right. And, and therefore, in America, just like with the you know Republican insurgency in the 90s, uh, you know, they had to go a bit to the right, you know, the work to welfare program, things like that, you know, well, Bill Clinton had to introduce so many different policies, which... Yeah, both the Clinton and Obama administrations, by British standards, are centre-right, right? I think that's not a, a kind of... I wouldn't say that was a controversial but, thing to say. Yeah, yeah. The question is whether or not... where, when, Why that sent the GOP wandering into the like furthest reaches of kind of... But white working-class voters, for example, even in Britain, you know, traditionally would have voted for Labour, and we're seeing that slip away to UKIP. And that's happening in America as well. We, you, know, you see all these supporters uh, of Donald Trump. Who well, are... you know, the thing is, 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 the Democrats have never really been a white working-class no. movement. They're, I mean, their coalitions... Of... Well, their Hispanic vote is quite large, isn't yeah. it? This is one of the questions about why Rubio would make a good... Uh, Republican candidate is actually one of the problems that, you know, I think there was a great stat that if only white men had voted in 2012, Mitt Romney would have won like every oh, yeah. electoral college. Like mm. He just would have been mm. blitzing it. But the traditionally the Republican Party, because of its hugely punitive immigration policies, mm. has really struggled with Hispanic voters. And the idea is that, you know, Rubio, who had quite a, 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 by American Republican stands, quite a moderate, he was one of the co-sponsors of the Dream Act right before mm. he pulled out, mm. could, you know, could, he could affect that kind of, he could be right-wing enough during the primaries, but then he could present a reasonably slight, slightly more centrist. And I think there position. are reasons to be very nervous about Rubio, not least the fact that uh, Hillary has failed to has dealt with Sanders' insurgency quite badly. I mean, ultimately, the, there is not a political difference between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in terms of what they would actually do in office. I don't mean that in a kind of um, so obviously the line that lots of people on the centre left of the Labour Party had about. Um, about uh, Corbyn was the oh well the different what's the difference between him and Yvette because he'll lose and he won't be able to implement his policies but even ignoring the challenge of winning an election uh, for the two for, for, for Sanders both of them are going to face Republican majority in the House of Representatives and possibly a Republican Senate so basically the, the next Democratic president's main job is to veto attempts to repeal Obamacare and appoint Supreme Court justices, uh, and again, you're constrained by try the, not to start any wars. Yeah, and constrained by the the people you can get through the Senate. So really, this bizarre way that Hillary ended up in a fight about single payer health care that I mean that worries me because I just think if she can't deal with some with that from a candidate who in office would not be that different to her and who also ultimately has this Achilles heel and he cannot win most primaries. I worry about what she'll do against the Rubio machine in the general. I don't think Rubio is going to be a problem for her because her potential VP candidate is going to be Julian Castro, who's, I think, the urban and housing you know, secretary or whatever its position is in the Obama cabinet. So she would have you know, the Hispanic support there as well and who are obviously already Democratic uh, voting 
anywhere to begin But my, with. my question to you, Iman, and I guess this is why it reminds me of, of last summer's Labour leadership, is that um, it seems to me that a lot of the Hillary versus Bernie thing is about pragmatic... Well, it's sort of, it gets framed as pragmatism versus principle, right? Yeah. Do you want to vote for the candidate who can dream a bit and is kind of saying things that people haven't said for a really long time? Or do you want to vote for the candidate who has to be a bit more cautious, but you feel might actually win over a larger electorate that is not kind of... It's that selectorate electorate problem again. I mean, that's how she's framing it at the moment. I mean, Bill Clinton is there saying, oh, you want a candidate who actually gets things done uh, compared to Sanders, who is the dreamer here. But I think uh, that's that sort of influence will allow her to become more to the left and actually adopt some of his positions or his line of thought. I mean, this is why uh, Corbyn was, was chosen, because he was a dreamer and was thinking big. So I maybe... think the other thing that I thought was really interesting, again, I think it came out in Henry Zeffman, who's just joined us, his, his piece about the differences between the two of them, is that Bernie Sanders has got much more of a legislative record, mm. right? He's tried to push through a piece of legislation. He's sat on the Veterans Affairs Committee, yeah. I think, you know, whereas, whereas Corbyn has never chaired a select mm. committee, which I was kind of, I don't know when you when you read that, Steve, whether or not you were slightly surprised. I mean, maybe you just sort of took that for granted. But this was part of Peter Wilby, our former editor, who, you know, is a has been on the left for a really long time. His kind of critique of Corbyn was that he didn't have any kind of campaigns to his name. You know, he didn't have yeah, a, he, a Birmingham Four or he didn't have it. You know, he, he, he hadn't made that kind of impact in the time that he'd had been uh, a backbench MP. I think with Corbyn, the problem is he has been an opposition MP, in, you know, even during the Labour years. We all, we all know that. Whereas Sanders uh, has turned that line because he is an independent, even though he does in a caucus with the Democrats, as we are seeing right now. But he's, like you said, he has actually got something to show for his own principles. That's the other thing I don't understand about the American electoral system, is that the idea that, you know, Trump and um, and Sanders kind of come in in a locked two-party system, having never really been mm-hmm. part of those, those parties fully... It's kind of weird, isn't it, to have a system that is so rigidly, bi- you know, bifurcated, but then kind of open to... But, Almost infiltration, I guess. Well, I think the difference is, is that with Sanders, that yes, he's run as an independent socialist. Um, I, I cannot recall the circumstances of his first Senate race where I think he did face Democrat and Republican opposition. Mm-hmm. But he effectively is a, a Democrat by any other name. I mean, if he hadn't been there, they wouldn't have had the 60 votes they needed to pass oh, the super majority. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those those wonderful days from uh, 20, 20, 2008 to 2010. Um so I think it is a bit different, uh, and uh, you know he's not quite like Trump. But they always have this open party system because, um, I mean, actually the problem with the United States political system and the reason why uh, the next Democratic president will not be able to achieve very much, if as I hope there is a Democratic president, uh, is because the U.S. system is not really designed to have political parties. Mm. Um, if, if 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 you have whipping or you have European style. Uh, party discipline, it breaks down. That is the problem. That basically the Republicans have become a European-style party. Yeah, you're, but, but because they don't have any leader in Parliament, I mean, they have the House Majority. That's the leader, thing. But... Yeah, if if Donald Trump were to win the re- nomination, his line of thought would be the leading line of thought within the you know. For but the trouble is that the one thing that the you know there's a there's a there's a theory advanced by political theorists that what happened that the reason that so many American presidents have a second term war is because it's the only thing that they can do. They they spend their first term getting um you know getting completely blocked at anything that they want in their distinct policy agenda. And then they realise that the one thing they can do is stand on like aircraft carriers looking macho, and so they they end up going slightly mad. Um, I'm going to finish quickly by asking you, Iman, first, um, which 
phrase from the West Wing do you think will be most overused by British journalists over oh, the next dear. six months? I have absolutely no idea. I think there are way too many to choose from. Um, I generally don't know. I've seen so many just in the past week. Um, I, Every time I see one of those campaign rallies with kind of stick it out, I start hearing that Dire Straits song, you know, and the one where he puts his hand in his pocket in the Mrs. Lanningham episode. <laughs> That's my entire experience in American politics is sort of scarred by... Well, I just wrote a piece about uh, political labelling and, and how it's used to the advantage and disadvantage. I think the word establishment is going to be the pick of this whole race. Uh, just as last, you know, I think the last election cycle, 2012, it was the word conservative for the GOP, and that obviously imploded uh, in their faces. I think establishment is the word I will just choose uh, for this particular race. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Podcast.